Celebrate Pride Month with TVO. Visit tvo.me slash pride for documentaries, kid shows, and educational resources. Discover inspiring stories of love, friendship, and resilience. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit tvo.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. What used to be unusual or rare weather events seem to happen more and more. Major rainstorms, wildfires, hot and cold spells that upend expectations, and more costly, crops. Damages tally in the billions each year, and experts say that's only going to increase. With us now on whether that could end up making Canada uninsurable, we're joined in Edinburgh, Scotland by Craig Stewart. He's Vice President for Climate Change and Federal Issues at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. In London, Ontario, Daniel Henstra, professor of political science and co-lead of the Climate Risk Research Group at the University of Waterloo. And here in our studio, Catherine Backus, director of climate finance and science at the Intac Center on Climate Adaptation, which is also at the University of Waterloo. And Catherine, we're delighted that you are making your television debut with us here tonight, uh, in a studio anyway. And Craig and Daniel, thanks for joining us in Points Beyond. Let me just set up our conversation with this. And Sheldon, maybe you could bring these stats up for everybody at home to follow along as well. The number of natural disaster claims for events such as hurricanes, floods, hailstorms, and wildfires has more than quadrupled since 2008. Last year, weather events accounted for $3.1 billion of insured losses. That is up from just $40 million in 2008. House insurance prices in Canada have gone up by about 14% over the past three years, with premiums skyrocketing by 5% in just the past 12 months alone. In 2019, Charles Brindamore, who's the CEO of Intact Insurance, said, we had to totally reshape our business model to make sure we had a sustainable business in the context of massive changes in weather patterns. The insurance industry knows. Okay, Craig, get us started here. How would you characterize the impact climate change is having on the insurance industry in Canada today? Well, you know, you've just gone through the, the stats. I mean, Canada is becoming a more difficult and pricier place to insure relative to other countries in the world. Uh, we've, we've all been experiencing these events firsthand. Um, the, you know, Canada is still, for the most part, insurable, but we are seeing, you know, certain perils such as flooding, uh, where, you know, high-risk areas in this country really haven't been insurable. And uh, and since 2013, insurers have really clarified we're, we're not going to go there, uh, you know, and, and that affects, you know, over 1.5 million homes across this country already. Catherine, let me follow up on that because that sounds incredible. There are parts of this country that are uninsurable today? Correct. As, as Craig was saying, 10% of Canadian homes across Canada are uninsurable for flood risk, which means they can still get home insurance, but they're not covered if they have a major flood event caused by an extreme weather event. And the insurance companies have determined that these places are uninsurable. Why? They've obviously done the statistics, they've run the calculations, but I believe we're actually in a very good place here in Canada because we've actually developed well-informed standards, guidelines and tools to build a more resilient Canada. We know what to do at the level of the home and community to reduce these key physical climate risks, flooding, wildfire and extreme heat. What we need to do is deploy them across Canada as quickly as possible to maintain that insurability and stability of the Canadian housing market. More on that as we continue our conversation. Uh, Daniel, why don't you come in here? Tell us how you see the scene right now. 
Sure. I mean, it's concerning that there are parts of the country where property is already tough to insure because of uh, the risk of loss is high and the reconstruction costs are also rising. Insurance is a business. You know, if premiums collected by a company can't cover its payouts and expenses, it quite rationally will exit those markets. And as Craig and uh, Catherine have said, fortunately, Canada's insurance market hasn't seen the same volatility as in the United States, but we can't be complacent. You know, climate risk is real and it's increasing and we need to manage it. Well, since you mentioned the United States, let me give an example here from California, where apparently State Farm has recently announced that it's going to stop selling new insurance policies because of the increasing likelihood of wildfires. Um, Okay, Craig, follow up on this if you would. Are there pla- where are the places in Canada right now where the risk of wildfire is so concerning that we may be going down that road as well? Well, we haven't really seen it in any part of the country yet. Uh, luckily for us, wildfire is still considered an accident no matter where you live in the country. Our emergency response, frankly, has been excellent. Uh, you know, in 2018, all of the interior of British Columbia burned, but we lost only 300 structures. You saw the response earlier uh, this year in Nova Scotia. We're pretty good at limiting damage. So, so far, the country, uh, in terms of wildfire, no particular part of the country is viewed by insurers as uninsurable now or in the near future. But, you know, that could change. Well, that's comforting news. But on the other hand, Daniel, uh, do you think it's fair to say that these extreme weather events are only going to be increasing in number as we go forward? That's certainly what's projected. We're going to see drier, you know, warmer, wilder conditions. And uh, we need to make sure that we're implementing all the tools that we can, as Catherine said, to make sure that we're building resilience in this changing climate. Catherine, how much do you think homeowners understand what's going on out there right now? I think there are limited... uh there's limited information available that is up to date that can inform in uh, homeowners of what is actually going on. I think there's a great opportunity in Canada to provide more information to identify where risks are. We could have a portal where you could put in your postal code to be able to identify what the key risks are within a given community. We don't have that yet? We don't have that yet. Who should do that? Uh, I'm sure Craig could speak to that probably a little bit better, but I think this is an all of society approach. We need all levels of government. We need public and private partnerships. We need to be updating risk maps. So if you look at flood risk maps across Canada, they're 20 to 25 years out of date. Hmm. But in my opinion, that's only one part of the puzzle. We need to identify the risks and what risks are within given regions, but we also need those resources to tell people what to do about it. Because we can't just say, well, you have a risk and do nothing about it. You need to identify those risks and what resources are available to reduce those risks. Craig, that idea, put your postal code into a website, seems pretty simple. How come we haven't got that yet? Uh, you know, it's a super interesting answer. Uh, you know, it was actually funded in the federal budget about three years ago, four years ago. Uh, Public Safety Canada looked into it at that time, ran into issues of liability concerns, had to take a step back, and then uh, has now reapproached it. And in the most recent federal budget, uh, in fact, funding was announced for that exact portal. Uh, they're hoping to get it up and running uh, over the next two years. They're going to start with flooding, but make sure that it can be expanded to address other other risks. And you know, Catherine is dead on. The you know, it starts with consumer awareness. It starts with Canadians being able to quickly access information about what the risk is 
and what they can do about it. And uh, and and uh, answer your question, federal government obviously is is the best best place to take leadership. But we all have a responsibility in in uh, in communicating. You know, whether you're a bank, a realtor, an insurer, we should all be reinforcing this information in our in our regular contact points with our customers. Okay, well, Daniel, maybe you could build on that. It, uh, it, clearly, it sounds like the feds ought to be taking the lead on this, but. Uh, where are they getting all the information from across the country in order to ensure that people get the best, most accurate information they can in a timely fashion? It certainly is a problem. You know, we did a survey a number of years ago of Canadians living in high risk areas and almost nobody knew they were exposed. They hadn't bought flood insurance, hadn't protected their home in any way. So there's a real information deficit. And, you know, insurers and governments kind of have a monopoly on the technical data that just isn't being available to Canadians. And to be uh, to their credit, insurers have been making this case for years to governments that we need this information. The federal government's listening. It's made new uh, flood maps in high risk areas. And the plan is to make these available to Canadians. But there's other things we can do, too. Property sellers or their agents could be required to tell buyers about flood risk, whether the home's flooded before or if it's in a flood area. Mortgage lenders could insist that buyers have flood insurance. We should be preserving natural flood protection like wetlands. And in some cases, we have to move people out of harm's way by offering to buy out risky properties. Who's the we who has to buy out risky properties? This means governments could mean federal and provincial governments will, in some cases, uh, have to put money on the table to move people out of areas that are just too dip, too dangerous to live in. Hmm. Catherine, um, okay, how do I put this? Because I don't want to insult anybody here because real estate agents, they have a difficult job to do, and but their job at the end of the day is to sell a place. Can you imagine a set of circumstances whereby real estate agents are going to let people know, oh, incidentally, I'm trying to sell this home, but you're on a floodplain and there's a great likelihood that you're going to be at risk of flooding in the future? Well, I think it's actually quite simple. I think when you're looking at a multiple listing service, uh, the, the one page that gives you the description, how many rooms the house has, how many bathrooms it has, I think there could be a very simple indicator. If we're looking at flooding, has the house installed a sump pump or a backwater valve? Yes or no. That shows that there are flood protection measures at the level of the home. And I think we will come to a point where we need to be disclosing this information. We're seeing across Canada class action lawsuits. There's one going on uh, in Oakville right now. I believe it's a $2 billion class action lawsuit. Tell me more about that. What's going on there? The municipality, the mayor, the conservation authorities, they're all named in this lawsuit because the homeowners feel that development occurred. It, uh, there was widespread development. Development occurred on floodplains. And now these homes are either being flooded out or they're being devalued. So they, they unknowingly purchased homes in a floodplain and now they're in trouble. Correct. So I think we can start small um, on those MLSs. Again, what are risk reduction measures that have been put at the level of the home? But I think from a larger scale, we do need this risk identification on a larger scale. Are you purchasing a home in a floodplain? And if you are, have risk reduction measures been put into place? Hmm. Craig, how about, I appreciate that you think the federal government's got to take the lead on this, but I, I guess you represent all of the privately owned insurance companies across the country. Should they have to make, should you have to make your data publicly available as a, as I guess, a partner in all of this? The answer is uh, yes. Uh, insurers have a role to play in making sure that um, uh, our customers understand 
why they're paying the premiums that they're paying. Uh, what What is the risk that uh, that our consumers are facing and upon which their premiums are based? And in fact, insurers are working constructively actually with the regulatory community across the country right now to do exactly that. We're taking a look at ways at which the premium renewal point, uh, we can we can all do a better job at reinforcing that 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 communication of risk to to consumers. A key piece of this, and and uh, and Catherine alluded to it, is you know how do you rate a home? Like we, we we've got energy efficiency ratings for a home right now, right? We an energy people are familiar with Energi, the home Energi system. Uh, so we have it on energy efficiency, but we don't have it on resilience. So how and and in fact. Uh, Minister Wilkinson, uh, again, Minister of Natural Resources, it's in his mandate letter, we need to develop some sort of home rating system for resilience uh, that we can use, that we can all use to say, yes, uh, you know, if you take a look at, you know, your your fire rating or your flood rating or your, you know, your wind rating, um, you know, and then roll that up into some sort of overall resilience rating, if we can do that, and, and then we can suggest to homeowners, these are the steps you can take to improve your rating. That's something that insurers can use. That's something that uh, banks could use. And it's certainly something that realtors could use as well when they're listing a home uh, to say, this is the rating of this particular property. And, and that would provide the incentive system at both the municipal level and at the homeowner level to, to, to make sure we're, we're taking the steps necessary to protect ourselves. Well, Catherine, let me come at this from another angle, which is there's not a politician alive in this province today that, uh, well, some days you think doesn't want to pave over absolutely everything in order to build more housing, right? we got a desperate need for housing with all the new people coming here. But if I hear you right, there are places in this province where we just ought not ever to build a house going forward. Is that right? Correct. We need more homes in this province. And in my opinion, every Canadian, every newcomer to Canada deserves access to affordable and diverse housing. But whether it's a new community or an existing community, in my opinion, all communities should be designed, built and retrofitted with adaptation or resilience measures to reduce extreme weather risk. What does so that do, mean, adaptation measures? So are we putting uh, are we putting downspouts on uh, homes? Are we ensuring there's some pumps in all homes and back wet or no. valves? Are we putting measures to reduce the risk at the level of the home and community? So do we need more homes? Yes, of course we do. But if we're building those homes and communities without resilience measures in extreme weather risk prone areas. So as you said, building on floodplains, then we could actually be putting those homes and communities into harm's way. And we could actually be inflicting greater financial and social costs on those individuals. So making sure our communities have measures put into place to reduce those risks and then providing educational tools to homeowners so they can make changes inside of their homes and outside of their homes to reduce risk. Daniel, does this sound to you like we need more and better provincial regulation to ensure what Catherine wants comes to pass? You know, the Climate Risk Research Group, we're thinking all the time about policy tools that can be used to manage climate risk. And the government has all sorts of different instruments in its toolkit. It could use, uh, and to, in this case, to get builders to integrate climate resilience into this new construction. This is an opportunity. Things like improving energy efficiency are using fire and water resistant materials. Governments could use a persuasion campaign. They can recognize exemplary efforts, use economic incentives. But as you say, it might require regulation by changing the building code to require certain practices or materials uh, to make sure that uh, homes are resilient. 
And it also speaks to the need to educate citizens on climate risk when they're making property decisions. I mean, it's nice to have a home with granite countertops, but are you going to be shoveling mud off the basement carpet when it floods? <laughs> that, that is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Do you have any sense about whether or not the province is considering some of these measures you just mentioned? The province has a guidance instrument called the policy planning um, statement, uh, and it's used to, or planning policy statement, sorry, and it's used to guide planning of municipalities. And it recently has been updated to integrate climate resilience and climate adaptation as priorities when making decisions about the siting of properties and uh, rules about materials and those things that are uh, to be used. The concern is always around affordability. Is this going to raise the cost of construction? And in some cases, it certainly will, and that cost will be passed on to consumers. So governments have to be careful about thinking about equity and making sure that any new policy changes are going to be, uh, are not going to have an uh, undue impact on lower income households. Well, that's the trick, isn't it, Craig? I mean, you've got to, I mean, all the incentives seem to be lining up in one particular fashion these days, which is build, build, build as fast as possible and not necessarily taking into account all the things you've mentioned. How do we get this stuff on the agenda as well? No pun intended. Well, we need to, we, we absolutely need to be careful about where we build and how we build. And, uh, and, you know, this is, there's, there's no point building homes uh, in harm's way that taxpayers are then going to have to bail out uh, afterwards. Uh, you know, we've done a, not a great job of that in the past. Uh, again, we have one and a half million homes in high risk uh, flood areas already. Don't want to add to that. Uh, and so we, we, we need to be careful of it. The, the decisions we're making. Uh, and, and as Catherine said at the start of the show, we know how to build these. We, we know we know how to build wildfire resistant homes. We know how to build flood resistant homes. You know, pretty simple to put hurricane clips on and to keep roof, roofing joists on uh, on a roof when uh, in the middle of a severe wind event. It's not an expensive thing to do. Best time to do it is actually when you're building the house. So we, we know the things, the very specific things to do. And if we're going to be building this many homes, which clearly we need to do, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be really important that they're done right. Catherine, can I just follow up on that? I get I get how you make a home more resilient as it relates to flooding. If there's a wildfire around your home, how do you make a home that's more resistant to that? There is actually resistive siding that you can put onto a home. And a post-analysis was completed in Lytton, British Columbia. And what they determined was that uh, wildfire was an extreme event. It was an extreme wildfire that had devastating impacts. And yet after the post-fire analysis, it was determined that the fire-resistive siding on the homes, which actually retrofitting a home costs a lot of money, but building a home from scratch with the proper materials could be approximately equivalent to building a home normally without the fire-resistive materials. Having those fire-resistive materials made a difference in whether a home burned down or not. So it can actually prevent the home from burning down in the midst of a wildfire. Correct. And there are measures around the home as well, moving shrubs and bushes 10 feet away from the home, putting a metal roof. So if you have a little debris falling onto the roof, this will actually stop your the, the, the roof, the home from igniting. And so there are practical things to do for homes located in the wild and urban interfaces, urban areas near forested areas. We can have breaks where you actually uh, 
mow over the lawn. And so you create a break between mm. the wildland urban interface and, and the urban area. So there is much we can do within forested areas to protect homes and communities. This seems like such common sense. I mean, the, the stuff that you're telling me right now is not all that technical. Why are we not doing it? Well, that's exactly it. It's We have created the, we've done the research. We know, as Craig said, at the level of the home and community, we know what to do in regards of flooding, wildfire, extreme heat, deploying that information, mobilizing mm. on that action is what we actually find to be the most difficult thing. And this is where I believe it's an all of society of approach. All levels of government, businesses, the media, academics, indigenous communities, we all need to be part of this conversation and we all need to be part of mobilizing action. I guess part of the trick here, Daniel, is that is that there are so many things these days that require an all of society approach and the public's bandwidth to deal with, you know, half of them, a third of them is only so much. What do we do about that? Well, one of the things we need to do is to have uh, strategies. And as you probably know, yesterday, the federal government published its final version of the National Adaptation Strategy. And it's a very detailed document, sets out eight action areas like disaster resilience, health and well-being, critical infrastructure and others, and dozens of specific ambitious targets to meet these objectives. Uh, so the plan is in place and now it's about getting budget towards it and implementation and engaging all of the stakeholders, a lot of which has already been done because this is not just a, a federal document, it's a national strategy. Um, but there are things that can be firmed up as well. For example, the Canadian Climate Institute has recommended specific things like better monitoring and evaluation mechanisms to make sure that we're meeting the targets, coordination mechanisms to make sure that all departments are guided towards this central goal. So there are things that we can improve, but this is a massive step forward. Well, let's talk for a second here, Craig, about, um, and I guess I'll use the analogy of auto insurance here. You know, there are some drivers who are pretty terrible and the private market will not deal with them. And so they got to go to the facility association and that's where they get their auto insurance because you're obliged, if you want to drive in Ontario, to have auto insurance. Okay, do we need something similar like that for homeowners who will not be able in the future to get private insurance for their homes because of all of what we've been discussing? It's the first time in a media event or interview that I've, I've, I've heard anybody mention the Facility Association. So uh, well, I hate to tell is, you, Craig, yeah, I only know about it because I've been on it. And I hate to admit that, but there you go. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. So Facility Association is a great model. Uh, and in fact, uh, in, in the spring, uh, you know, due to Minister Blair's hard work, uh, the federal government did announce that they were going to stand up a national flood insurance program for the country which is sort of a facility association for high-risk homes. Uh, so for those 10% uh, of homes that are una unable to get overland flood insurance today, uh, the plan is that by 2025, there will be a new government-backed insurance program uh, that will make insurance available for those homes. So they're not relying on taxpayer bailouts. They're actually they actually have an insurance facility uh, that will meet their needs and help them to reconstruct after an event. And the important Part of this is that it will be expandable. They're, they're looking at, they're going to design it to handle flood first, which is a, the biggest problem we're all facing from an insurance perspective. But if we if we get to the point where we've got high-risk wildfire areas in the country that can't be insured through the private market or, or other perils, uh, hail, uh, wind, then, then this facility could be expanded to also address those perils as well. All right, let's talk cities for a second here. Catherine, uh, I don't have to tell you, we just had an election in Toronto in which the issue of a billion and a half dollar 
hole in the budget means the city has no money to do anything. Uh, so, I don't know, can cities do anything? I know Burlington's doing some stuff. Do you want to talk to us about Burlington? Well, Burlington, after 2014, they had a major flood event due to a high precipitation event that flooded out 3,500 homes. And from an in infrastructure perspective, Burlington has been doing wonderful things. They've been ripping up their piping systems and ensuring that there's larger capacity for rainwater and sewage to run through those systems. Who pays for all that? The taxpayers do. Of Burlington? Correct. Okay. But at the end of the day, there are things that can be done for limited to no cost at all. At the Intex Center on Climate Adaptation, we have developed three steps to cost-effective home flood, wildfire, and heat protection infographics. We've been working with cities across the country, from Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, Montreal, Oakville, the town of Antigonish, the, the, the county of Antigonish. And what they've done is they've adopted our infographics, they've translated it into their own city-specific infographics with their own photos and logos, and it's the cost of a piece of paper, and you put it into the property tax mail-out notice, and you mail it out to the constituents. Do they read them? They do. Uh, our work with the Canadian Red Cross, we've determined that 70% of homeowners who report receiving this infographic implement at least two of the actions within six months. Huh. So we know it is a useful tool to not only identify risk, but also to reduce the risk. Well, Daniel, this does get down to the bottom line here, which is how much of this is ultimately the responsibility of the homeowner to take care of, as opposed to governments, academics, media, etc., to let them know what's going on. More responsibility has to be on the property owner. And, you know, the governments uh, have been moving in this direction. Certainly, uh, disaster financial assistance programs all say that it's for uninsurable, unexpected losses. So there has always been an expectation that citizens would inform themselves. But the argument uh, my group has been making to governments is this is premature. Unless you make the climate risk information available, easily available to citizens and understandable, it's unfair to expect them to take on a greater role. But there is information available. As Catherine has just said, there are practical things that homeowners can do to protect their home from flooding and from wildfires and other perils. And in many cases, they don't do them. And that's partly a lack of awareness, but it's partly just not thinking ahead to the types of risks that can happen. I guess, Catherine, in our last minute here, the key is just be aware that this is going on and that you need to take steps to deal with it. Correct. And yeah. that there are measures in place that, or there are resources available that you can put measures in place to reduce those risks. Where do we see those infographics? You can go to the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation web website under reports and resources and the infographics are right at the top. We have them for flood at the level of the home, wildfire for home and community, and extreme heat at the level of the home and apartment and condo. That sounds like a very useful thing to have. Yes. Okay, we will be checking that out. I want to thank uh, the three of you for coming on to TVO tonight and helping us out with this. We learned a lot about something that we're going to need to know more about going ahead, particularly as the summer comes and we get those flash floods and rainstorms and so on. Uh, we need to know about this. Craig Stewart coming to us from Edinburgh, Scotland. He's the VP of Climate Change and Federal Issues at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Daniel Henstra from London, Ontario, professor of political science and co-lead of the Climate Risk Research Group at the University of Waterloo. And here in our studio, Catherine Backus, director, climate finance and science, Intact Center on Climate Adaptation. That's where you'll get those infographics. Also, University of Waterloo. Thanks so much, everybody. Take good care. Thanks very much. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you.
Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.